Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to see the seats getting fuller and fuller. Before long, we'll be adding rows. Can't wait. It's going to be great. Thank you for coming. If you are uh, new with us here today, um, or maybe have not been back in a while, just want to remind you that we, um, our pattern here is that we teach through books of the Bible. Um, that's our pattern. It's, we believe that God's Word is inspired. Um, it, they are His words, and that His Word is good for reproof and correction and for teaching, um, so that we would grow in righteousness and grow in uh, likeness of Jesus. And um, today, we are uh, continuing the book of Esther. Um, it's a seven-episode book. Today's number six. We'll be finishing it up next week. And I've titled it, um, Two Irrevocable Decrees. And um, what you're going to see today is that um, God, from the very beginning, has made two decrees. Um, one is, is he has decreed that um, all have sinned. Um, he decreed it after our first parents sinned, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that every human being is, um, is under the law of judgment, is under the law of condemnation. And then there's a second decree that doesn't, um, doesn't um, revoke the first one, but it reverses it. And that decree is, is that, um, that even though the wages of sin is death, that there is, free gift, there, is, there is salvation. There's a free gift through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the second decree is that there is salvation through faith. And so we're going to see that um, clearly in Esther today. So would you pray with me? God, we just, uh, we're grateful for your word that we can um, stand behind it, we can soak in it, and that we, can, we will, can know that you will accomplish whatever it is that you want to accomplish in our lives um, by it. So God, we um, are here today asking you to change us, to transform us, to um, show us um, areas in our life where we are not trusting in your promises. Um, God, would you help us um, by being reminded of your providence in the book of Esther how you are at work today, um, no matter what's going on in the midst of, of a pandemic, in the midst of elections, in the midst of fires, um, in the midst of, um, of death of loved ones, God, that you are working in all of it and that your promises are true and that we can stand on those. God, I pray if there's anyone here today that, um, that has uh, not quite um, understood the gospel, um, they are still on the outside, so to speak, looking in. They're still under the, um, the decree of judgment. God, I pray that you would open their eyes so that they might believe in your decree of salvation. So, God, I'm, uh, as always, a beggar in need of your grace, and I just pray, God, that you would help me uh, proclaim rightly um, your word this morning for your glory and for the good of your people. And God's people said, amen. So, uh, chapter... 7 and 8. We're going to bite off a big chunk again today, and I'm going to be reading it kind of, kind of as we go through it. And I'm going to be doing a high-level review as well. I've actually got two pages of notes, uh, just FYI, of, um, of review. This is very much like a, uh, if, you're, if you're into um, um, uh, Netflix shows, I don't know what you call them, where you get episode after episode. It's, if you drop into the book of Esther right now in chapters 7 and 8, you're probably going to have a hard time understanding what's going on. So I'm going to give you a high-level review, just starting in the last couple of chapters. Um, and I want you to be uh, cognizant of um, just what's going on in your own life and your, in your own heart right now. Uh, what it is it that you're struggling with? Which, which of God's promises are you um, struggling to believe? So let me just start out. Uh, Mordecai, 
is the adoptive father of Esther. The Esther is the namesake of the book. And Mordecai reported an assassination attempt on King Ahasuerus, or we call him King Xerxes. So I'm going to go back and forth and know it's the same, same guy. And he was not honored for, uh, for this righteous deed of, of averting the assassination attempt. However, the attempt um, and Mordecai's role in averting it were written in the king's diary. Um, they were written in, in, the, uh, in the chronicles, and they were kept there to gather dust for several years. At the same time, Haman the Agagite, who is the enemy of the Jews, and, and Agagite, he was the leader of a people group called the Amalekites, which were um, haters of God's people for centuries. So Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, was promoted at the very same time to second in charge of Xerxes' kingdom. And Xerxes commanded that all people bow down and give respect to Haman. And all did, in fact, bow down to Haman. Everybody did, except for Mordecai the Jew, who would give him no respect and would not bow down. And this lack of respect infuriated Haman, and he determined to kill Mordecai. But it wasn't just enough to kill Mordecai. He wanted to kill all of Mordecai's people, which happened to be God's people, the Jewish people, in the entire uh, kingdom or the entire empire of Xerxes, which is 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India. Haman told the king that there were a certain people who lived in the king's vast empire who did not keep the king's laws and therefore should not be tolerated. He asked the king for his permission to destroy all of these people and in turn, this is important, that he would pay the king 10,000 talents. If you allow me, king, to kill all these people in all 127 provinces, um, I will uh, plunder their goods and I'll pay you 10,000 talents, which, by the way, is a lot of money. It was about 60% of the tax revenue for the entire empire for a given year. So Xerxes sold them out. He, he sold the people out. And he gave Haman the, his signet ring, which empowered Haman to make a binding decree to, uh, to the entire empire to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of these Jewish people, young and old, women and children, on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, 11 months after the, the decree was made. Mordecai, as you can imagine, was rightly disturbed, and he entreats Queen Esther, his adopted daughter, who's now in the kingdom, to beg the favor and plead for the lives of the Jewish people, of which she is one of them. And after a couple of semi-legitimate excuses, Esther calls for three days and three nights of fasting and praying for her and with her. Then in prayerful dependence upon the Lord, she will approach the king and mediate for her people. And she said in chapter 4, verses 14 through, through 15, if I perish, I perish. At the end of the fast, Esther does in fact approach the king and thankfully he holds out his golden scepter signaling his approval for her to boldly and confidently approach his throne. He invites her to make a request, make, make a, her request known to him saying that he will gladly grant her wish. However, instead of pleading for her people, she requests that the king and Haman come to a feast that she will prepare for them that night. And at the feast, the king asked a second time, what is your wish? And it will be granted to you. Once again, she didn't mediate for her people. And once again, she invited them to another feast that she would prepare for them on the next day. 
through all of this, Esther does not follow Mordecai's instructions precisely. He told her simply to go to the king, beg for his favor, and plead with him on behalf of her people. She had two chances already to make the plea. One in front of the king in his throne room, and the other sitting at the feast that she had prepared for the king and Haman. After the first feast, Haman left joyfully and glad of heart, it says in chapter 5, verse 9. And on his way home, joyfully on his way home, he passed the king's gate, and he crossed paths with who? Mordecai the Jew, who neither trembled or bowed down to him. And Haman was filled with wrath, yet somehow he restrained himself. Arriving home, he gathered his family and friends together, and he recounted the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and how the king had advanced him to a royal position, and even Queen Esther invited him to a feast with no one else but her and the king. This is a man that was full of pride, and all he wanted to do is to build his own kingdom. However, while he was bragging to his family and his friends, he complained that that all of his splendor and glory is, is not worth anything if Mordecai continues to sit at the gate. So his wife and friends suggest that a gallows be built, 75 feet high or 50 cubits high, and then in the morning he should go t- tell King Xerxes to um, hang or impale Mordecai on the gallows. And then after you tell King Xerxes to kill Mordecai, go joyfully with the king and Esther to Esther's feast. Problem would be solved. That very night, when the gallows was being built to impale Mordecai, the king wasn't sleeping. So after checking text messages in the middle of the night, he called for his attendants to bring his diary and read it to him. They just so happened to turn to the pages where it was written how Mordecai had averted the assassination attempt on the king's life. And the king asked, What honor and distinction had been bestowed upon Mordecai for this righteous deed? And the answer, of course, was nothing. There was no honor or distinction that was given to him. At that very moment, Haman walked into the king's court to ask him to hang Mordecai. But before he could get a word out, King Xerxes asked Haman, What should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman says to himself, Self, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Then he starts laying out a plan for the king to honor this person, quite sure that it must be him who the king delighted to honor. And he said this to the king. He says, have your most noble officials clothe him in the king's robes, put put him on a king's horse, and let them lead him on the horse through the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man who who the king delights to honor. The king loved the idea. And told Haman to hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew. Leave out nothing that you said. So Haman, shocked and mortified, who eight hours earlier had built gallows to impale Mordecai, the Jew, now leads him through the city on the king's horse, clothed in the king's royal garments, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What a turnaround. And after this presidential um, procession through the city, Haman dropped Mordecai off at the king's gate, and Haman, the weasel that he is, returned to his house mourning with his head covered because of embarrassment. 
when he tells his wife and his, uh, his so-called friends what just happened, they pronounced a chilling, these chilling words on Haman. They said this, if Mordecai, before, before whom you had begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So today, in chapters 7 and 8, we watch these words come true. We will also be reminded that God's promises are a surety for God's people today and throughout all time. His promises never fail His people. There's four scenes today, four scenes that will reveal the great reversal God accomplished for His people according to His promises. Scene number one is in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, the defeat of an enemy. Scene two, chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, exaltation of the righteous one. Scene three, Verses 3 through 14, judgment and rescue decreed. And scene 4, in verses 15 through 17, a contagious rejoicing. We've got four, four questions that I want you to consider as we go along. And I would encourage you to, um, they're not going to be shown again. We're going to probably put them on the website. If you want to consider these, take a picture of the screen. Um, are you trusting in the promises of God today? Number two, are you rejoicing with gladness and feasting? no matter what's going on in the world or in your life today? Will you be able to rejoice with gladness next week, no matter how the election turns out? Do you believe God is working in your life, and in the life of this country, and in the life of this world? And do you believe that he will continue to work, no matter what? If you would turn to chapter 7 of Esther with me, it will be on the screen as well. And we'll read it together. Well, I'll read it. You'll listen. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ashiharis said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. And he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Scene number one, verses one through 10, the defeat of an enemy. Esther most likely had no idea what just happened the night before, that there were gallows that were built for Mordecai. But she may have very well known about the procession through the city because it was quite a spectacle. 
a procession for the honor of Mordecai. Much has changed as a result of one sleepless night. And I want you to hang on to this. It's pretty simple, but it's pretty profound. That next time you can't sleep, remember God isn't sleeping either. But God is working. He's working all the time. He never slumbers and he never sleeps. We see a shaken Haman, a relieved Mordecai, and a resolved Esther show up at the feast, at the second feast. And Esther asked the king for the third time, or the king asked Esther for the third time, Esther, what is your request? And I'll give it to you. Esther doesn't give her full response yet, but she does ask the king to spare her life and to spare the life of her people. And she uses the same wording in her plea for the life of her people as Haman had decreed in his threefold terror. Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. She said, we have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. It's actually hard to know. I had a hard time understanding what she was referring to in saying that she and her people were sold and that there could have been some loss to the king. And I think the best explanation that I found is in a, a Jewish commentary written by a guy by the name of Michael Fox. Not Michael J. Fox, but Michael V. Fox. And it's a helpful paraphrase of the second half of verse 4. And, it's, and it says this. These are Esther's words paraphrased in verse 4. Please understand, king that if we had merely been sold into slavery, I would not have asked for a cancellation of the sale. For the misery we would suffer thereby would not have been severe enough to justify causing the king to forfeit the money the sale was supposed to bring him. Remember, the Jewish people had, had in a sense been sold to Haman and, because Haman promised to pay Xerxes 10,000 talents for the privilege of destroying a certain people back in verse chapter 3, verse 9, and chapter 4, verse 7, for those of you that are fact-checking this morning. Verses 5 and 6, it says, The king demanded to know who sold Esther and her people to destruction, and Esther responded with rapid-fire words, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. And it says, And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. He should be. The king, full of wrath, stormed away from the table and into the garden. And in satisfying irony, Haman, the proud Agagite, obsessed with Mordecai, with Mordecai the Jew's refusal to bow down, now falls groveling before Esther, a Jew, pleading for his life. And as Haman fell onto the couch, groveling and groping Esther, the king walked back into the room at that minute, and he was beside himself as he found Haman grabbing a hold of his wife. My, I could just imagine him just hanging on to Queen Esther's ankles, just pleading for his life. And at that moment, the eunuchs threw a hood over the head of Haman, and one of the king's eunuchs said, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. The terror that Haman experienced is analogous to the terror that will be known by all of God's enemies. This reality makes us grateful for the gospel through which even Haman-like wickedness can be fully and freely forgiven. For in God's plan, Christ hung not on the gallows, as Haman did, but on a cross, where the penalty for the sin of all who trust in him was fully and completely paid. 
If you would turn to chapter 8, verses 1 through 2 with me, we'll see scene number 2, the exaltation of the righteous one. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told, her, told him what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. <clears throat> Xerxes gave Esther all of Haman's wealth. And Esther tells the king who Mordecai is to her. My dad. The king, in response, gave Mordecai his signet ring that had been taken from Haman. What an incredible turn of events. At the heart of the empire, there was a complete turning of the tables. The enemy of God's covenant people had been removed, and a representative of God's covenant people had been promised or been promoted. And we can breathe a sigh of relief because Haman is impaled, and we can cheer because Mordecai is exalted. We can kind of hear the relaxed, feel-good, end-of-the-movie mu music begin to play. The, but the danger to God's people is not over. The clock for Haman's edict for all the Jews to be, to be destroyed, it's still ticking. Additionally, Xerxes thinks that he has heard and responded to Esther's request. God's people are still living under the shadow of a terrible death, and in nine short months from now, the irrevocable law to annihilate, destroy, kill, all the Jews will be executed. You see, the execution of Haman and the promotion of Mordecai will prove to have guaranteed the coming rescue of the people of God, but that rescue has not yet been accomplished. This reminds us of the reality that we live in today. We can look back and be reminded that the enemies of sin and Satan have been defeated and that Jesus reigns and rules, but we still live in the valley of the shadow of death. We still live in the weakness of a sin-soaked world while we await our final rescue. If you would read chapter 8, verses 3 through 14, as we look at the third scene, the judgment, judgment and rescue decreed. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. <clears throat> when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing to his, to his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The king, Ashaharis, said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows. But he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Saban, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. 
And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. No one, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of, of Adar. A copy of, of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Esther now gets a chance or the courage to make her final appeal to the king. In verse 3, it says that Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. In chapter 7, she exposed the evil man who was to bring harm to Esther and her people. And now in chapter 8, verses 3 through 6, she asked the king to avert the evil plan and to revoke the law to destroy the Jews in all the provinces. In verses 7 and 8, we see Xerxes tell Esther that the decree made in the name of the king and sealed with his ring cannot be revoked. It's irrevocable. The law of death decreed upon the people of God cannot be revoked or amended. The Jews are under the law of condemnation. And the New Living Translation gives us a helpful understanding of verse 8, and I'm going to read it to you. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want. This is Xerxes talking to Esther. Tell them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with the signet ring can never be revoked. The parallels here of the past, present, and future reality for all of humanity, that all of humanity, um, past, present, and future, is under the law of condemnation, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This too, it's an irrevocable law. And thankfully for the Jews, Mordecai, having the authority of the king, could, could write a new edict. Not an edict that revokes Haman's condemnation, but a new edict for all who are under the law of condemnation or judgment, but who now trust in the new decree. Verses 9 through 14, we'll see this new decree. Mordecai issued an edict of salvation two months after Haman's edict of condemnation. And I would encourage you that um, either now um, you can put one finger in chapter 3 and one finger in chapter 8 and look at the comparison of the two or do it later. It's pretty fascinating. Um, we're going to see that, that, the, um, that Mordecai's edict in chapter 8 dramatically reverses the original edict made in chapter 3. And I'm going to make some high-level observations here. In both cases, the scribes were summoned. Um, in the first case, uh, Haman summoned the scribes to summon, summon the scribes to write the edict on the thirteenth day of the first month. Remember what that signified? It was the day before Passover. Day before Passover. Then two months later, Mordecai made a very similar summons on the twenty-third day of the third month. I don't think that date has any significance other than to tell us that two months have gone by and there's nine months still before the annihilation happens. The edict was written to, in chapter 3, according to what Haman commanded. And now, in chapter 8, the new edict is, is written 
uh, by what Mordecai commanded. Both edicts would be sent to the entire empire, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Both were written in the name of King Ashoharis. That's what the signet ring does, is that you can make edicts in the name of the king. Both edicts were sent by mounted couriers. Listen to what it says in chapter 3 about this. Haman gave instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. In chapter 8, Mordecai gives instructions to the Jews to gather and defend their lives and to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, whether it be children and women included, and also to plunder their goods. It's getting interesting. Haman's decree in chapter 3 proclaimed that all the peoples should be ready for this day to kill the Jews. Mordecai's decree in chapter 8 proclaimed that the Jews should be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. I want you to notice that the Jews are authorized by their attackers, as their attackers have been, to plunder the property of the enemies. And we're going to look at that next week. So you're going to have to come back to hear why they did that and if they actually did that. A more concerning question for me involves the taking of lives. It's pretty, pretty horrid. This will also be addressed next week. For now, I want you to consider the connection between this new edict that will save the Jews and destroy God's enemies. I want you to compare that with the promise that God made to his people in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. The promised blessing is salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Those in the Old Testament who believed in God's promise of blessing through Abraham's seed and those this side of the cross who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. That's blessing. In John 5, 24, there's, there's, there's these two edicts that are talked about. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes in him, or believes in me, Jesus is saying, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Condemnation or judgment is an, is an irrevocable law, that every human being is under it. And so is salvation through faith in Christ, though. And there's these two irrevocable truths or two irrevocable decrees in one verse in Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death. It's irrevocable in a sense that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That it's man's nature. And sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow, especially when we look at um, innocent children. But even innocent children are under God's judgment, His decree that all will be judged, that all are under a sentence of death. But be encouraged for the second half of this verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an irrevocable decree of salvation for all who believe. 
in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And we see in verses 15 and 17 a contagious rejoicing over this second decree or second edict. After Haman made his decree to kill, destroy, and annihilate the people of God, you know what he did? It says that he sat down and he had a drink with the king. And you know what the people in the city of Susa did? They were thrown into confusion, it said, in chapter 3, verse 15. And I want you to notice in verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, how Mordecai is described after making this new decree and how the people of God reacted to this new decree, or might I call it a new covenant. I hate it when that happens. Now we've got to actually find it. Chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's commander and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. I'm going to stop right there. In the city of Susa, they shouted and rejoiced with gladness and feasting because their enemies, enemies defeated and their champion reigns and rules. And their victory is sure. This is the opposite from a reaction in chapter 3, 15. After Haman's edict, where we're told that the entire city was thrown into confusion. The people who had been under the law that sentenced them to death now hear a gospel proclamation that promises them life. And it's not surprising that they rejoice. However, they didn't shout and rejoice with feasting and gladness because their lives were now perfect. People still got sick and died. They still lived in a pagan kingdom. And there would continue to be persecution. But they rejoiced not in their circumstances, but they rejoiced in the promises of God. And these are the same promises that we can hang on today. And wherever the king's edict of blessing reached, there was gladness and joy and feasting. There's salvation to all who believe in the seed of Abraham. This salvation decree is irrevocable. And so are all the promises of God that come along with salvation. And for you and I today, it should elicit rejoicing and gladness and feasting in spite of our circumstances. What happens on Tuesday has nothing to do with our rejoicing and gladness and feasting. In fact, I would double-dog dare you that if the election doesn't turn out the way that you want it to turn out, that you call a feast. And you rejoice and be glad because God reigns. We have a champion that reigns and rules. And his promises are sure. Let me give you another promise. And it was shared yesterday at, um, at Suzanne Johnson's memorial service. And I thought, wow, what a perfect promise for us to hang on today. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and verses 37 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Personalize this. 
Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or pandemics or elections? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and continues to love us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all of creation, we will be able to separate you and I from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want you to notice how this ends. I want you to notice how this second decree um, infects and draws in people that are outside of the Jewish faith. Verse 17, last part of it. And many from the peoples of the country, these are peoples that the first edict said to kill the Jews. And many from the peoples of the country declare themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This echoes Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The news went out to the entire earth, all 127 provinces of Xerxes, reversing the sentence of death upon God's people, causing rejoicing wherever it was heard, and causing people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to become part of the covenant people of God. Interestingly enough, this was before, this was nine months before um, the day of death was coming. So by identifying with these, these outsiders identifying with the people of God, these outsiders, these people of the nations were putting themselves in the middle of harm's way, of the conflict. It cost them something to do so. But they realized that identifying with the promise-keeping God of the Jews is better than being an enemy of God. The nations began doing what Esther had done risking their lives to identify with her God and not identifying with the values and the powers and the safety and the security of this age. And brothers and sisters, today, at the end of October or 1st of November, which one is it? 1st of November, we do well to stand on God's promises. They are sure. They are true. He is steadfast. And rejoice with gladness and feasting, knowing that the enemy of sin and Satan have been defeated. That sin no longer reigns in your mortal body. We, yes, we have a flesh. And Satan cannot control us. He's been defeated. He's a defeated enemy, as we talked about last week. He's on a leash. And he goes as far as God will allow him to go. And we have a champion named Jesus, who reigns and rules. And he's got his eyes on you. The Father has his ear inclined to you and I. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. And we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for these gospel truths. God, we know that the beginning of our journey of salvation is first acknowledging that we're under 
the judgment of a just and holy God. And God, after recognizing that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we recognize that you've had a plan from the beginning to bless us in Christ Jesus, to bring forth a Messiah who would live a perfect life, would become the perfect Jew, and who would willingly go to the cross and take all of our sin, all of our shame, take all the condemnation and judgment that we deserved upon himself, receive the full wrath of the Father so that we would receive no judgment, no condemnation, and no wrath. And God, I thank you that that second edict for those who have been called to you is irrevocable. That there's nothing that can separate us from your love. Not parenting mishaps, not a spat with our spouse, not a peek at the wrong thing. But there's nothing that can separate us from your love. And God, I pray that that would compel us, that your love would compel us to trust in your promises and to live in joyful obedience, proclaiming your name, proclaiming the gospel, and then watching you do your work of saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.